Let's bow in a moment of prayer together. Father, we thank you for tonight. We are grateful for a chance to study the Word of God. We are grateful for a chance to gather together as the people of God. We are grateful, Lord, for what you've taught us. And we continue that you, and pray that you continue to teach us, Lord, those things that will enable us to grow closer to you. For truly, Lord, you are a great God. And you alone are worthy of praise. And we thank you. So teach us tonight as we look once again at the book of Job and what you're doing in this man's life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 6 and Job chapter 7. Job 6 and Job 7. Now as you're turning, I want to remind you that the Bible says in the book of Proverbs on three different occasions that, that in the multitude of counselors, there is victory. Okay? In the multitude of counselors, there is victory. When you're looking to, to make a decision, it, it's good to have a multitude of godly counselors that will teach you excuse me, instruct you and lead you to making the best decision possible, all right? Job is in the midst of having a multitude of counselors, all right? But the Bible also says in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, verse number 21, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Of the tongue. In other words, <clears throat> whatever has potential for, for good has an equal but opposite potential for evil. And so you need to think about that. The power of words is, is tremendous. And so within this multitude of counselors, <clears throat> they're going to use their words. And the words that they use are going to be more death-like than life-like. When it comes to Job. So you need to remember that as you, as you listen to his counselors speak to him. Because he's going to respond tonight to, to Eliphaz. And he's going to make a request to the Lord. And then he's going to remain silent. And then next week, Bildad is going to speak. And you'd think that he would learn from what Eliphaz said, and what Job says in response to Eliphaz. You would think that sitting there, they would learn to bond at least emotionally with Job. But they don't. They are are far from that. They don't really listen to what he has to say because they already have a preconceived idea as to what they do want to say. And so that brings much reproach upon Job and his life. Satan is actively at work using these counselors to rev up the intensity of Job's misery. And they're effective at doing that. When you think about what Satan has done already, he has has destroyed his family. Satan has distracted his wife. He has dismantled his business. He has disfigured his body. He has demolished his dignity, damaged his health, and completely derailed his mind because now he doubts and is confused. This is what Satan has done 
already. And yet he's going to use these three men in his life to ramp up the intensity of his misery just by using their words. You would think that after seven days of silence, things would be a lot better than they were. But they're not. So what I'm going to do is take you through chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're going to read through it. And as we do, we're going to look at chapter 6, which is Job's response to Eliphaz. Chapter 7 is Job's request to God. And then we're going to look at our reaction to what we've just heard and draw some principles and some conclusion as to where we go based on what we've heard this evening. Okay? Great challenge for me as your pastor to be able to take you through these conversations and to be able to show you what these conversations mean and what is the lessons God wants us to learn through the conversations that these men have with, with, with Job and then Job's response to these men. And how do we continually look at these conversations and come to a different conclusion or to a better conclusion or to understand what God is doing? Very, very important. And so it's a great challenge for me to be able to present it to you because I think it's so enlightening for us to understand what it is God is doing in the life of Job. Remember, the whole story is about God's sovereignty amidst man's suffering. That God is sovereign, he rules over all, And Job understands this, as you will see in our text this evening, but he doesn't always understand exactly why God is doing what he's doing, just like you don't and I don't. But that's a good thing, because that keeps us trusting in our Lord. So let's look at it together. We'll begin in chapter 6, verse number 1. This is Job's response to Eliphaz. Then Job answered, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together of together with my calamity, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. Eliphaz, you want to know why I said what I said in chapter 3? You want to know why I responded the way I did? Let's just take the scales and put all my suffering on one end of the scales. And then let's measure that out by taking all the sand that's in the sea, placing it on the other end, and then you can balance out my pain. Then you can understand my pain. But if you can't gather up all the sand on the seashore and all the sand in the sea and measure it against my suffering, you have no idea what's happening in my life. Now, let's think about this. No physicians came to Job's assistance. No nurses, no doctors. When you have pain, what do you do? Well, you take your aspirin, your Advil, your Aleve, whatever you got going on, right? And if that doesn't work, you go to the doctor and get something stronger. If that doesn't work, you, you get surgery, whatever, whatever it is you got to do to relieve your pain. None of us likes to sit in our pain. We want to rectify that. We want to get out of pain. We don't want to sit in our pain. So if you have a headache, what do you do? Yeah, you take something to get rid of your headache. Lay down. Maybe that will help you get rid of your headache. Job can't get rid of his pain. 
It's constant. It's enormous. No one is going to come alongside and say, hey, look, Job, let me do this with you. This will help you with your sores. This will help ooze the, uh, help uh, uh, take care of the pain and stop the oozing from those sores. Let, let, let's give you this medication. Nothing. Doesn't have that. So again, it, it's hard for us to relate because all of us can get out of our pain some way or another. We have a doctor that we can call. We have urgent care that we can go to. We have somebody who has some kind of medication that they can give me <clears throat> that will help relieve my pain. Job doesn't have that. So you need to be like Eliphaz. Hear the words of Job and just go down to Laguna Beach and begin to collect all the sand on the beach. And once you collect all the sand in Laguna Beach, put it on the scales of Job, of, of, uh, Job's pain, but that won't balance the scales because you have to you have all the sand in the sea to balance the scales. That's how bad his pain is. I can't explain it enough to you. I can't illustrate it enough for you to help you understand the enormity of his pain. It is severe. And so he responds by telling Eliphaz, this is the heaviness of my affliction. It weighs me down. So he says, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. They're poison. My spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So he knows that God is behind this. He doesn't know how God's behind it, but he does know that God's involved in it. And that the soreness and the sickness, symbolized by the arrows that have struck him, have come from the Almighty. That God is somehow doing something, although he doesn't understand it. So he says in verse number 5, Does the wild donkey bray over his grass, or does the ox low over his fodder? Answer, no. If they're being fed, they're good, right? But try not feeding them for a couple of days. What happens then? Oh, they are hungry, right? And they will make all kinds of noise until you give them something to eat. Can something tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? In other words, you know how blah and bland that is? Let me tell you about my life. My life is so bland and blah at this point, there's nothing left to it. And I'm hungry. And I'm hungry for some kind of compassion. I'm hungry for some kind of kindness. I'm hungry for some kind of words that will soothe my spirit. But you came with nothing. You came with no words of sympathy, no words of compassion, no words of kindness. And this is what I'm hungry for. So he goes on and says this. My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. In other words, that which I did not ever want to eat, I am now eating, and that is my pain and my sickness. So he says, oh, that my request might come to pass. What's his request? To die. And that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Again, he recognizes that God's hand is upon him. Now, this is very important. Why? Job was given the opportunity to inflict Job, but he couldn't kill Job, right? So what does he do? 
he puts Job in the worst possible situation he could be in. A situation so bad it would kill anybody else. But it doesn't kill Job because he can't kill Job. Do you understand this? He wants to kill Job, but he can't because God said no. So he's going to afflict him with a pain and a disease that would kill anybody else, but not Job. That's how bad his disease is. That's how bad things are for Job. Oh, if God would just grant me my request. But he knows that God holds the keys to death and Hades. God's in charge. So he can't die unless God kills him, unless God allows him to die. Again, he's expressing his belief in the sovereign control of Almighty God over his life. But you need to understand where he's at. He's being afflicted with a pain that would kill anybody else but Job. Because Satan can't kill Job. And yet Job would love to die. But God's not going to let him die. Why can't God let him die? Because he told Job he couldn't kill him. And if God kills Job, he lets Job out or lets Job out of the situation that he is in that he might defame his God. And God knows Job's not going to do that. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle, but you need to understand what is happening here as you look at Job's life and what he's going through. And then just try to compare your pain with his. The, the next time you have an ache, don't do anything. Don't call the doctor. Don't take any medication. Let your pain fester for weeks on end. Just try that. Don't do anything. Listen, I've had knee replacements. I've had hip replacements. I've had back surgeries. Why? Because I don't want to live in pain, right? So if you can replace it with titanium, replace it with titanium. I'm good, for, I'm good to go, okay? I'll take the pain. I'll take surgical pain over my back pain, my hip pain, my knee pains. Give that to me, right? Because that will all get better. But the next time you're in pain, do nothing for weeks. Just sit in your pain and let it get worse and worse and worse and see how you handle it. But see, we don't have to do that. Job has to. There's no place to go. Urgent care has been closed for years for Job. Okay? He has no friends that are physicians. And the friends that he does have, he wishes he didn't have those either. That's all he's got. Nobody else shows up. Just these three guys. And so he's listening to them, and now he's got to respond. And so he responds in a way that helps him understand, look, this is, this is why my words were rash. Understand where I'm coming from. Understand the enormity of my pain 24-7. It never ends. In fact, he goes on to say this. But it is still my consolation, verse 10, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What a testimony. What a man. I rejoice in the fact that even though I am in this agony, I have yet to deny the Holy One of Israel. I still trust Him. I still believe in Him. I still follow Him. He is 
my God. Verse 11, what is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Is it that my help is not within me? And what deliverance is driven from me? In other words, my flesh is not bronze. He says, my my strength is not the strength of stones. I'm a man that has nothing within me to, to help with my agony. I have nothing. So he says in verse number 14, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Don't you think? From the man that's in despair, don't you think you could speak some words of kindness? You would think that they would do that, right? You would think that at least they would sit, hold his hand, and pray with him. You would think, right? But who wants to hold a hand that's full of sores that ooze pus all the time, right? Or, as you'll read in a moment, who wants to hold the hands of a man whose sores are full of maggots? Because that's what the text is going to say in a minute. Nobody wants to do that, right? But you would think that at least they would reach out and, and, and with some kind of cloth touch him, put their arms around him and, and, and pray with him and talk to the Lord about his situation. But they don't. They just want to talk. Talk, 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 talk. Remember what the book of Proverbs says? In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. People like to talk, talk a lot. They're probably hiding sin somewhere. And there's probably sin somewhere behind the words they're speaking. So be careful. And so Job says very easily, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Don't, don't you think that the words of kindness would help me have just great respect for the God who is all-powerful. My brothers have acted deceitfully like, like a wadi. This is so insightful. Listen to what he says. Like this torrents of, of wadis which, which vanish, which are turbid because of ice, and into which the snow melts when they become waterless. They are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their, of their course wind along. They go up into nothing and perish. The caravans of, of Tima looked, and travelers of Sheba hoped for them. But they were disappointed, for they had trusted. They came there and were confounded. He said, my friends have deceived me. They came like, like, like fresh water from, from a wadi. That would be such a refreshing thing for me to, to have. But when they began to speak, they, they were like the, the wadi was all dried up. Like the sun had scorched all the water and it was gone. Like the citizens of Tima and Sheba, they were looking for water. And oh, if they could just find it. But when they, when they saw it wasn't there, they were, they were confounded. I, I'm confounded. Because you guys came to bring refreshment, but instead there's nothing but dryness. There's nothing but harshness. There's nothing but but hot air. What insight. Now you would think that, that, that Bildad and Zophar who are listening to how he responds to Eliphaz, well, they would take note. Ah, but they don't. Because emotionally, they're not there. 
They're, they're, they're not on the side of Job because they just can't get over the fact that he is so disfigured and so nasty looking that this has to be the judgment of God upon his life. Has to be. He has sinned. He just doesn't know how bad he sinned. For what else would be the cause of this man's great pain? So they don't emotionally bond with him at all. So he says in verse 21, Indeed, you have now become such. You see a terror and are afraid. I, I know why you are the way you are. You saw me, and you don't know what to say, and you're afraid. Because we saw that when they came upon him, they began to weep in chapter, chapter 2 because he was so disfigured. They didn't even recognize the man. So he says, I understand that when you, when you saw me, it was terrifying to you. And you have no words for which to say or speak anything kindly to me. He said in verse 22, have I said give me something? Have I asked you for anything? Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the hand of your adversary? Or redeem me from the hand of your tyrants? Have I asked you for anything? Have I asked you for money? Have I asked you for what? Anything at all? No, I didn't, I didn't even ask you guys to come. You just showed up. If it was today, they, he'd be asking for, for a GoFundMe account to pay for the, the funeral of my kids. Right? Or a GoFundMe account to take care of my, my business problems because I've lost my business. Would you set up a GoFundMe for me, please? No, Job doesn't ask for anything. I didn't ask for you guys to arrive. You just showed up in the city dump. Just sit next to me. Glad you're here. Appreciate you being here. But I haven't asked you for anything. I haven't asked you for a doctor's phone number. I haven't asked you for a physician that you know personally that will be a, a sister. I haven't asked you guys for anything. Not a thing. Completely different than what people today would be like. They'd be asking us for everything under the sun. But, but Job's not that way, see. He's not self-absorbed. He's not self-consumed. He's just in pain. He's in misery. And so he says, teach me. And I will be silent and show me how I have erred. If I sin, show me. I'm willing to listen. What a great man. I'm willing to listen to, to how it is you, you show me that I have sinned against the Lord. Teach me. I'm open for that. I'm not against that. I, I want you to tell me how painful are honest words. But what does your argument prove? Verse 26, do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? You would even cast lots for the orphans and barter over your friend. Now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. Desist now. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern calamities? Look, guys, if... if if, if there's something wrong, tell me. But look at me. Look at me in the eyes. Look at me and look in my face 
Am I not telling you the truth? Do you not understand that what I'm saying to you is exactly what's on my heart and on my mind? And if I tell you that I, that I haven't sinned, because I've searched my heart, you've you got to believe me. Because if there, if there is a sin that I don't know, tell me. I'm open for that. But I don't see it. So that's Job's response to Eliphaz. Chapter 7 is Job's request to God. Is not man forced to labor on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man and a slave who pants for the shade as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages? Talk about the dreariness of my life. This is the way my life is. Lord, you need to understand this is how things are. I'm like the guy who works for slave labor. And I'm waiting for some kind of shade at the end of the day, some kind of reprieve from all that I'm going, th- going through. But there is no reprieve. There's, there's just none. So I am allotted months of vanity, emptiness, and nights of trouble are appointed me. Again, nights of trouble are appointed me. There's been an appointment, and that appointment is a divine appointment. He recognizes that God is behind all this. He says, when I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. In other words, he says, I want to go to sleep. So I go to sleep, hoping that that the dawn will come. But the dawn doesn't come. It's still night, so I toss and I turn, and I toss and I turn. Why does he keep tossing and turning? Because he can't sleep. Why? Because no matter what side he sleeps on, it's painful, right? Right? Listen, I, I, I've had sleepless nights. Have you had sleepless nights? What do you do? You get up, you walk around, you might turn on the TV, watch a movie, you might read a book, you might go to prayer. If you're really spiritual, you might even read your Bible, right? When, when you can't sleep. But, but what's, Job has no Bible to read, he has no TV to turn on, right? Can't really walk around because the sore's on the bottom of his feet. So he just tosses and turns and tosses and turns hoping that morning will come. But morning doesn't come because he's got to go all the way through the night. Then finally the morning comes and he hasn't slept a wink and now it's all day again. This is his life. This is why his, his, his life is like the egg white that's, that's not salted. It's just tasteless. It's just blah. It's dull. There's nothing there. And then he says this. Look at this. My flesh is clothed with worms. And the crust of dirt, my skin hardens and runs. He's describing his pain. So in these open sores are maggots, are worms. And they crust over. And then they, they, they break open and they run, they ooze out. This is his life. You're going to get tired of hearing this for the next 20 some weeks, okay? Well, not really 20. I guess we're down to, to 19 now. It'll be 19 next week, 20 weeks left. But you're going to be tired of hearing this because it's so bad. It's so depressing. It's so down. But the minute you think that, just think of how Job felt when he experienced it. Put yourself in his body, put yourself in his ash heap. As much as you're tired of hearing it and don't want to hear about it anymore, Job had to live it every single day with people who could not give him any comfort whatsoever. So he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end with, without hope. I mean, by the end of the day, there's nothing but the next day. Nothing but the next day. There is no hope. 
because nothing's changing. I'm not getting any better. In fact, I'm getting worse. He says, remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he goes down to Sheol and does not come up. He realizes what, my life has nothing, nothing left to it. I'm insignificant. I have nothing to give. He doesn't recognize that he's already given to his wife by leading her in the right way. Through his conversation with these three men, he's going to give to them, although they don't see it. He's not, he's not going to dishonor his God. God will be glorified in his life. He has great purpose to his life. But in the midst of it, he sees his life as insignificant and purposeless. So he says, Therefore, verse 11, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Based on what has happened and what I've said, I have nothing else to do. Am I the sea or the sea monster, verse 12, that you set a guard over me? I'm not like them. If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. In other words, if I'm looking for some kind of comfort, I realize that when I close my eyes, there's nothing but terror and visions of bad dreams. So that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. That's what I choose. That's what I want. Some, I, I, there's no way to get out of this. There's no way to numb this. There's no way to, to be better from it. So the only solution, Lord, is to just let me die. Take my life. That I can move on from this. He says, I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. I'm not going to be around forever anyway. And in the, in the broad scheme of things, my life is just but a breath. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Just let me die now. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? Why are you so concerned about me that you let me live? That you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Why are you so invested in me? Why are you so invested in man? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me, but I will not be. Lord, just let me die. If I've sinned, forgive me, but just take me home. Let me be done. And they silent until Bildad speaks. And that's next week. So what do we get from all this? I thought about several things. I thought about talking about the brevity of life, because Job mentions it quite frequently. I thought about talking about the severity of suffering, because Job suffers tremendously. 
talk about thought about talking about the, the certainty of satanic attack because we all face that. I, I thought about talking about the futility or the stupidity of our friend's counsel. That would be a good topic. I thought about talking about the misery of life because man, of course, is born into trouble until sparks fly upward or as sparks fly upward. I thought about talking about the iniquity of man because that's all here in the chapter. But instead, I thought I would talk about the infallibility of God's purposes and the reliability of God's provision. The infallibility of God's purposes and the reliability of God's provision. God's purposes are perfect. They're infallible. They are without error. Although we might see them as error-filled, they are absolutely pristine. God has a, a special and unique purpose for every one of us in the room. And the reliability of His provision is a guarantee. No matter what. Now Job does not know this yet, but he's being instructed by the Lord. Job's theology is going to be enhanced beyond anything he could ever imagine. Doesn't know it yet, but that's exactly what God's doing in his life. God is going to enhance his theology to such a degree that he will say at the end, I have heard of you, but now I see you. I've heard, but now I see. And to be able to see the Lord is intimacy with him. And Job is going to learn that. Job, as he becomes silent, would just like a little bit of encouragement from his friends. A little bit of understanding from his friends. And I'm sure would like a little support from his wife. But that's never going to come. Especially if you've already been with us and you know the, the book of Job. But God is at work. God is at work in Job's life despite the fact that he can't see what God is doing. And despite the fact that God has been silent to him. God is teaching Job about himself. He has gone to great lengths to bring Job to a place he wants him to be. Job does not quite understand that yet, but he does know that God is behind the arrows, that God has appointed this time for him. Satan has a reason for wanting Job to suffer, and God has a reason for allowing God to suffer, uh, Job to suffer, excuse me. You see, because through the persecution and through the pain comes perfection. Through the misery comes maturation. It becomes the Suffering becomes the megaphone by which I'm able to understand God, unlike any other thing in 
my life. The hardest lesson to ever learn is that God alone is the one who determines what is best for us. The hardest lesson you're ever going to learn is that God alone knows and determines what's best for us. I'm a father of eight children. As I've raised those children along with with my wife, I know what's best for my children. They think at times they know what's best, but they do not. Because I've been there. I'm a lot older than they are. Okay? I've been down the roads that they are just now embarking on. So I know what's best for my children, although they might not think I know what's best. I do know what's best for my children, that I might be able to raise them properly. But God knows what's best for his children because he's going to raise them not properly, but perfectly. So the hardest lesson you're ever going to learn is that God knows exactly what's best for you. Even though you think he's made a mistake. Even though you think he doesn't know what he's doing. Even though you think that you know more than he does. You don't. God knew what was best for Job. And you read the story and you hope that God's best for you is not Job's story. Right? And yet God knew what was best for Job. God sees the beginning as well as the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And God's counsel will be fulfilled exactly as he's ordained it, as he has planned it. So having said that, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that will help solidify this for you. Passage of scripture that I've shared before over the years. Some of you might remember it, for others it might be new. But Isaiah the prophet is speaking, God is speaking through Isaiah the prophet. And Israel's about to go into captivity. They're about a hundred years away from that yet, but Isaiah prophesies concerning that. And so This is the question that Israel asks. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Israel, why would you say that? Because that's what they were saying. Why why does my justice escape my God? Why is it that that my way is hidden from God, that God doesn't see the direction I'm going. Why is it God doesn't see it? Because if he does see it and he does nothing about it, he must not be concerned about my justice. Why is it God's not stepping in? Why is it God's not stepping up? Why isn't God interfering to change my predicament? You ever asked that question? Of course you have. We've all asked that. Come on, Lord, is it, don't you see this? Don't you know what I'm going through? Don't, can't you grasp this? You think Job asked that question? Lord, what's going on here? How is this happening to me? So the Lord's going to answer. 
Isaiah's writing, he answers, and he gives three titles about the Lord. Three titles that will forever help Israel understand the why question. Okay? He says this. Oh, by the way, this is Isaiah 40. I know you're probably thinking, where are we? Sorry, it's Isaiah 40. My bad. So in verse number 28, or verse number 20, uh, 28, yeah, he says, Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. <coughs> Excuse me. His understanding is inscrutable. <coughs> he is the everlasting God. He is the Lord. And he is the creator of the ends of the earth. In other words, he's the master architect of everything. And so Isaiah is going to tell them, listen, you need to understand, number one, God's undeniable presence. That is, he is the everlasting God. He is the eternal God. He always was, he always is, he always will be. And he's always the eternal God who is in all places at all times. He speaks of his undeniable presence. And he speaks of his unbelievable power because he is the Lord, the Almighty, the God of the universe. And then he speaks of his unfathomable purposes because he is the creator of the ends of the earth. The master architect. And then he says, let me talk to you about his unspeakable promises. Because he doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, those who wait upon the Lord, they'll gain new strength. They will mine up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You see, the answer to all of our why questions, the answer to every question you ever have, listen very carefully, is all wrapped up in the attributes of the living God. The attributes of God are the summation of who he is. And so therefore, our understanding of God is absolutely essential. <coughs> Job's understanding of God is absolutely essential. He needs to understand who God is. We think we need to understand how to get out of our predicament. We think we need to understand the answer to the why question. We think we need to understand something other than who God is. But the greatest answer to the greatest question centers around who is God. He is the everlasting God. He is the Lord. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah uses three specific titles about God to help them understand that his presence is undeniable, his power is unbelievable, and his purposes are unfathomable because his promises are unspeakable. Having said that, he goes on and talks about what the Lord says. This is very important. Chapter 41, verse number 13. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, 
who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Then he repeats it. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, signifying that they really are nothing at all without him. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. (coughs) Excuse me. I am the one who will help you. There is no one else who can. God wants to bring you to a place where you realize that there's no one who can help you. That you are helpless without him. I talked about this last week. God allows adversity to happen, difficulties to arise, because he wants to show how helpless we are. That we can't do anything without him. The problem is we think we can, but we can't. So God will do whatever he has to do to bring us to a point that we can do nothing without him. God says, I'm your helper. There is no one else to help you. I'm it. So let me read to you what I've read to you in years past about what Charles Spurgeon says about this verse in Isaiah 41, verse number 14. I will help you, says the Lord. He says, let us hear the Lord Jesus speak to each one of us. I will help thee. It is but a small thing for me, thy God, to help thee. Consider what I have done already. What? Not help thee? Why? I bought thee with my blood. What? Not help thee? I have died for thee. And if I have done the greater, will I not do the less? help thee? It is the least thing I will ever do for thee. I have done more and will do more. Before the world began, I chose thee. I made the covenant for thee. I laid aside my glory and became a man for thee. I gave my life for thee. And if I did all this, I will surely help thee now. In helping thee, I am giving thee what I have bought for thee already. If thou hadst need of a thousand times as much help, I would give it thee. Thou requirest little compared with what I am ready to give. Tis much for thee to need, but it is nothing for me to bestow. Help thee? Fear not. If there were an ant at the door of the granary asking for help, it would not ruin thee to give him a handful of thy wheat. And thou art nothing but a tiny insect at the door of my all-sufficiency. I will help thee. O my soul, is not this enough? Dost thou need more strength than the omnipotence of the united trinity? Dost thou want more wisdom than exists in the Father, more love than displays itself in the Son, or more power than is manifest in the influences of the Spirit? Bring hither thine empty pitcher. Surely this well will fill it. 
Haste, gather up thy wants, and bring them there. Thine emptiness, thy woes, thy needs. Behold, this river of God is full for thy supply. What canst thou desire beside? Go forth, my soul, in this thy might. The eternal God is thine helper. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. That's our God. His undeniable presence is available to help us. Just as it was for Job. You say, but it took so long to help him. Ah, God was molding him. God was shaping him. God was going to use him mightily. But he had to go through what he went through in order for that to happen. But oh, when God helped him, oh, did God help him in ways he could not even begin to fathom. So too for you and me. That's God's promise. He will help us. May we trust him for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. Truly, God, you are great and awesome. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for all you've done. Thank you, Lord that you alone will help us. In Jesus' name, amen.